Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. very first black robe regiment tomahawk will go to our pastor pastor chris mccray here's his name do you see a revolutionary war pastor carrying a bible black robe regiment and on this side is the line of judah and the cross and it says second timothy chapter four two through five preach the word in season and out. Pastor Chris, please come and accept your tomahawk. Welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal podcast, and now we're joined by Josh Hammer, who is an opinion editor of Newsweek, a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation, counsel and policy advisor for the Internet Accountability Project, a syndicated columnist through creators, and a contributing editor for Anchoring Truths. A frequent pundit and essayist on political, legal, and cultural issues, Josh is a constitutional attorney by training. He hosts the Josh Hammer Show, a Newsweek podcast, and co-hosts the Edmund Burke Foundation's NatCon Squad podcast. So it's Hammer time, not NC Hammer, who is also from down there in the Miami area. It's Josh Hammer time. And I just want to tell you, thank you so very much. You know, Edmund Burke once said that, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. How do you see things changing in the media aspect? Because I believe for too long, progressives, socialists, leftists, Marxists, communists, they have had a control over this media outlet. But now conservatives are starting to recognize this and we're starting to stand up. Well, Colonel, it's great to be with you. Thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will continue to do. So, you know, look, to your point, I mean, I, you know, I am kind of in the belly of the beast here, right? I mean, I am a very outspoken. I, I don't hard I don't hide my cards as to who I am. I have mm-hmm. a kind of I have a voluminous right wing track record at this point. I'm a down the line, hard line conservative, but I'm working for a historically liberal brand. So, I mean, what we're trying to do in Newsweek is very interesting. I mean, if you go to our op ed page, newsweek.com slash opinion. You know, we're not exclusively running conservative content. I mean, I am not tasked with the mission of turning Newsweek into Breitbart or The Daily Wire, which is where I used to work, actually, by the way. But we are trying to basically just air the entire spectrum of views, which in and of itself is is very rare in today's media landscape, obviously. And I work with a team of five editors. I have five, four deputies working under my under my leadership. And each and every day we're trying to platform solid conservative views and then plenty of other views that I don't personally agree with. But my editors have kind of full discretion to do whatever they want. But 
the media landscape is increasingly, to your point, obviously, is highly, highly fractured. I mean, in order to get kind of conservative or even kind of vaguely right of center perspectives at anything closely approaching a mainstream media source these days is very, very hard. The Wall Street Journal editorial board, you know, is obviously center right. It's not hard right, but it's kind of, you know, establishment Republican right. The New York Post, God bless them. I love the New York Post. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Newsweek and, you know, my little fiefdom, we're trying to kind of basically publish and write up center viewpoints every day, but there really aren't that many other mainstream outlets there. And what we're trying to do, and the reason it's so countercultural, I think, is because the media landscape is so bifurcating into kind of warring echo chambers, right? Very rare do you kind of see these echo chambers kind of come at each other in a, in a, in a legitimate exchange of ideas, try to trade ideas and policies, philosophies, and see who ultimately will triumph in the name of pursuing truth. That, in theory, is what we're trying to do, Colonel. I'm not sure that we're succeeding, but I like I like the thing that we're making incremental progress towards trying to bring people together in this contestation of ideas. Well, you're creating a beachhead, if I can use a military type of uh, analogy. And from the beachhead, of course, you have to expand. But when I think about Newsweek, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was January of 2009, uh, after Barack Obama was elected, uh, Newsweek ran a cover that said, we're all socialists now. Am I correct? Or was it time? I, I honestly have no idea, to be totally honest with you. Oh, that, right. was, that, that was well before my time. But it, it, would, it would not shock me. to be. That was when they were owned yeah. by the Washington Post, so it would not shock me. And, and so it's amazing to me, you know, if I do have this correct in my memory, I'm, I'm 61. I had a lot of parachute jumps, so, you know, sometimes I get a little off track. But for you to be at that same media outlet today, that's an incredible leap, an incredible step. Now, do you have these internal fights or conflicts with some of the other more woke people there at Newsweek who maybe want to try to suppress some of the things that you're saying? So I'm probably the least popular employee at the entire company, <laughs> I, I, I would guess. I mean, going back to the, yeah. to the very day that I was hired over two years ago now on May 1st, 2020, hard to believe I've been there for over two years now, but on the very day that I was hired, there certainly were – some people internally who send some pretty nasty missives to the editor-in-chief and to ownership basically objecting to my hire. There have been a couple of other co- mini-controversies over over the past couple of years that have kind of you know gotten people to rise up. There was one incident um, involving my friend John Eastman back in August 2020. Before John was actually a President Trump attorney, he wrote a pretty controversial op-ed that we published in Newsweek. And around that time, there was, um, you know, there was a memo where some people at the company were really – Deeply, deeply unhappy for me and basically looking for me to, you know, to go the way of, of the dodo bird, so to speak. But, you know, to my, to my boss's immense credit, they have they have stood by me. And um, to their even further credit, they really have a fairly hands off um, approach, honestly. I mean, I think that I have shown that I can kind of generate big names contributing and not just big names, but quality content. I mean, this ultimately is a content driven business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and the fact that I obviously that I have some deputy editors who do not necessarily politically agree with me, but who are more center or even kind of center left. I think I've shown them to them that I'm intellectually honest enough to do what I am tasked to do and just platform the whole spectrum. So like you said, it is it is a beachhead. Uh, Newsweek, to, to clarify again, it's not going. It's not. It will not be the next Daily Wire. It's not like a right wing company, but it, but it is different insofar as basically every single day you will see us airing conservative content. And then my weekly podcast, which I just started 
uh, four or five months ago now with Newsweek is an avowedly conservative podcast focused on the future of the American right and conservatism. So they really are making a concerted effort to really kind of platform conservative views. And, uh, you know, I, honestly, if you had asked me, Colonel, when I joined, um, if I if I would be there over two years, I probably would have laughed and said, no way. But here I am. And um, it's it's yeah. going well. Do you think they're hedging their bets a little bit? Because, you know, one of the things I think the reason why the left wants to suppress conservative thought is because they really struggled to make the case for their their ideology. And when they are met with good, strong, young constitutionalists such as yourself, or we see what had just recently happened in the Supreme Court, they don't know how to combat against it other than to th- go into a rage and, and show anger. So... You know, do you you know what do you think is the driving motive? It, you know, do they really want to show uh, opposing thought uh, because they know that maybe things are slipping away from them? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you see that, of course, in, in the context of big tech censorship as well. I mean, if there's one thing that the left is deeply, deeply, uh, you know, uh, avowedly afraid of. It is the fact that their ideas could actually go challenged and that investigative reporters could actually get to the bottom of the things that they're saying that in the case of the Hunter Biden laptop story from October 2020, that the media would actually report on what would look like serial misdeeds from a profoundly corrupt family. So they are deeply, deeply, deeply afraid of this. I mean, like, look, I mean. You know, the abortion issue, which obviously has kind of risen to the forefront of the national conversation due to the Supreme Court's excellent ruling in the Dobbs case, this is actually a perfect issue because what the left has done for 30, 40 years is, you know, they they use what um what, what we, we might call, a, you know, the euphemistic imperative. They use euphemisms to describe mm-hmm. what abortion is, whether it's referring to pro-choice. Well, no, it's not pro-abortion. It's pro-choice. Women's They're, reproductive health. Reproductive health, reproductive freedom, clump of cells. You know, they never talk about, obviously, the fact that this is the taking of an, of an unborn life because they are they know that when that when you get around the obfuscation, you take their ideas on head on. The American people are not on board with their bat crap, crazy ideas. So whether that's in the big tech space or this kind of use of euphemisms in the abortion context or other contexts, you know, Black Lives Matter is actually a, a good example of that, too. Excellent. Right. I mean, like, yes. We're not talking here about urban anarchy and just looting and destroying seeds. We're talking about liberation or overcoming America's original sin of slavery. You're all, you know, like it, it's all these various layers and layers of euphemisms, but it's, it's all kind of geared towards the sole end of trying to avoid the heart of the matter because they know that when conservatives can actually attack head on the heart of the matter, their ideas are going to lose in the long term. No, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I've told people is that. You know, when someone confronts you and says black lives matter, you don't come back and say all lives matter because they're they're prepared for that. What you have to do is put the left on defense. And so I tell people always ask them which black lives matter, because when you think of the 20 to 25 million unborn black babies murdered in the womb. Nobody talks about that. The issue of fatherlessness in the black community. No one talks about that. The black on black crime. I mean, right now, you know, everyone is focused on what just happened, the shooting in uh, Highland Park, Illinois. But no one's talking about the 77 shootings that happened just 25 miles south of there over the weekend in Chicago where 10 people lost their lives. So, uh, you know, I applaud you for you doing that and bringing that up. And challenging them. Now, the other thing I'm so proud of you doing, because you and I uh, are both kind of, uh, you know, speakers with Young America's Foundation. I enjoy going on the college campuses and confronting these little young woke leftists who their professors are not teaching them very well. 
What are your experiences going on these college campuses? Yeah, no, look, YAP is a wonderful organization. Uh, I've done a, a number of campus, campus talks as well with ISI, which is another similar mm-hmm. organization, and then also the Federal Society because I'm actually mm-hmm. also a, a lawyer by training. So, I mean, I was protested um, at Northwestern Law School last October, I guess it was. It was very funny. They had uncovered some tweets of mine from like two to three years ago, and they decided that I was a transphobe. So they, they organized kind of a transgender-oriented protest, and they had like 30 to 40 people at Northwestern Law School. They all wore black T-shirts. They held up signs. Uh, you know, I, I, I took photos. I, mean, I, I, I found the whole thing kind of amusing, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I, I, I was I was I was a little unnerved at one point when one of the protesters kind of approached the front of the classroom and then kind of went to go near like there was like a coffee jug, went to like went to like the thing of coffee. I thought they were going to like throw it on my shirt and try to like ruin my clothes or something. It, it, it ended up going okay, to be honest with you. But I mean, I, I enjoy that environment because I have nothing to hide. I mean, yeah. I, I, I am extremely open and public about what I stand for, the principles and values that I promote. And I'm fairly confident, I dare I say, in the in the beliefs that I hold and I'm even confident in the manner in which I'm able to express it. So uh, whether I'm kind of outnumbered 30 on one or whatever, it just doesn't bother me. I think back yeah. when I was in high school, I mean, I, in AP government, my senior year of high school when I was 18 years old, this is kind of during the Bush era. I mean, I you know, I kind of came up during like the Bush era, middle school and high school. I was kind of the only Bush era Republican in my entire AP government class taking on 25 liberals on, on things like Guantanamo Bay and stuff like that. So, I mean, the idea of being outnumbered in a hostile setting, let alone being protested on campus like I was last fall, it doesn't particularly phase me, to be honest with you. No, and the same here. And it's interesting. I had an experience at Northwestern University. Uh, I was there to speak on the Iranian nuclear agreement. And the first question, young uh, black female came up and asked me if I identified as black, which I just really said, this is dumb. But it's just sad, you know, these are the type of things that are young people being taught. Now, when when I look at you, and like I said, I'm 61, I have hope for what is out there because I see good, strong, young, intellectual conservatives such as yourself out there in the space. Uh, are we doing well with raising that next generation of young conservatives, especially in the arena of media because the we've got to get into the schools of communications and journalism on these college and university campuses to prevent them from just being the 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 mill for the next leftist propaganda so do you think that we're doing better uh on our college and university campuses well i i think the answer is yes and no so the yes part of that answer is so i mentioned isi so isi is among a handful of conservative organizations that helps get in there at the college level and funds uh, right of center or at least kind of contrarian countercultural college publications. So, you know, I, I went to, you mentioned Chicago. I actually lived in Chicago for three years. I went to University of Chicago for law school. So right now, the University of Chicago college kids, they have, they have a thriving right of center publication called mm-hmm. the Chicago Thinker. They're putting out fantastic content, actually, like really, really, really good stuff. So, you know, it, it, that's, a, that's a possible model because, you know, the one thing is as much as, uh, you know, college admissions offices might offer like affirmative action for liberals and progressives and discriminate against conservatives, there are inevitably going to be at least more vaguely right of center people on campus than the traditional college newspapers will otherwise permit. So what, what I'm trying to say is there's a bit of a market disorientation. So, th- so there should be a market opportunity for a well-funded, well-sourced right of center newspaper on a lot of campuses. The Chicago Thinker is a good example of that. So that, that's the yes part. And so I think we are doing a decent job. The no part 
is that at a higher level, at a kind of a deeper level, I I, I tend to be pretty blackpilled, as the kids would say these days, about about higher education in America. I, I think I, I really think it is as bad in general as people say it is. And I think that the only kind of viable mid to long term solution is to deprive them of every single penny of taxpayer dollar dollar. But to even go further than that, to ultimately really deprive them of legitimacy. And I think conservatives, our side, Colonel, I think we're going to have to make some really hard decisions about whether or not we really want our kids to go to these woke madrasas of leftist indoctrination. I mean, look, I I, I mean, I, I feel very blessed and privileged. I, I I went to great schools. I went to Duke and the University of Chicago. But I look, my children growing up, I mean, if they're brilliant to get into Princeton or Harvard, do I really want to send them there? I mean, these are hard questions to ask, but I think I think the times are going to have to call for that because it, not only is it very expensive, but what are you ultimately sending them Therefore, I mean, just yeah. to get exposed to people talking about like lesbian dance theory and critical race theory. I mean, like where, where does where does the madness stop? So it's it's kind of a two pronged answer to your question, I think. You know, you bring up a great point because I've often talked to people about there should be a Hillsdale College in every state yes. in the United yes. States of America. But another thing that I look at, you, you know, my ideological mentor is Booker T. Washington. And I think about how he, you know, first founded Tuskegee, Tuskegee Normal Industrial. Institute. We've got to start investing our money, like you just talked about, ISI going in and supporting these, uh, you know, right of center uh, newspapers uh, on these college and university campuses. There are so many historical black colleges and universities that are struggling right now. And I think that, you know, why don't we have philanthropists on the conservative side that are going in and, you know, buying some of these universities, philanthropists that are going in and buying some of these failing newspapers and really starting a conservative media, uh, you know, consortium, because it's a system that we have to start looking at. The system of education that feeds into it, the the online, the, 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 the magazines and periodicals, the newspapers and all of that. So what is, are your thoughts on how we can really – vertically and horizontally integrate conservative uh, philosophy of governance into the media. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Kent Charnig, and I'm the founder of El Paso County, Colorado Progressive Veterans. Don't worry, we're not crazy tree huggers, but we do have an amazing podcast talking about nothing but the military, and veterans. Please check us out, epccpv.org. Thank you. Talk to you soon. It's a good question. I mean, one place where we can start there, this is kind of an active debate that I've had with a lot of friends, law school friends and whatnot, is I, I think there has to be a debate as to whether political identity, political philosophy, political party, whoever you want to d- describe it, should actually be added to the Civil Rights Act. So, you know, I think generations of conservatives have to have discussed and they're not necessarily wrong about this, mm-hmm. about just at, at this point, you know, the Civil Rights Act has gone too far. Perhaps this is this is Chris Caldwell from the Claremont Institute wrote a great book on this, about how the Civil Rights Act has been weaponized. And he's not wrong about any of that. Mm-hmm. The problem is that it's not necessarily going anywhere. So at this point, shouldn't we at least want to protect conservatives who at this point are basically the most discriminated against group in America? I mean, I, 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 I 
feel confident saying that. I, I literally do not think that there is any group in America right now that is discriminated against worse than political conservatives across kind of like the racial, sexual, immigration status, any of them, right? So I, I'm not sure exactly what way that cuts as far as making inroads into kind of the media or, or the universities or Hollywood, Silicon Valley or anything, but at a bare minimum, it should make sure that these kind of HR departments, at least in, in kind of uh, the private sector as woke as the woke capital, you know, Gramsci and March to the institutions continues that at a bare minimum, these HR departments should know that they cannot openly discriminate against conservatives in the hiring process. So that ultimately should trickle down and have some salutary effects in the media itself. Uh, you know, you mentioned journalism school earlier. I, I have to think that's probably a losing proposition. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm the opinion editor of a major publication. I have never taken a formal journalism class in my life, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure it would have benefited me. But, you know, I should say that. I mean, I do have some deputy editors who, who have some formal journalism training. But but there's there's realistically speaking just no way that conservatives are ever going to make inroads in journalism school. So I think I think we have to take kind of a burn it all down approach to that the same way that we should take that approach to probably to probably to higher education in general. So looking forward, um, where do you see yourself as a prominent young constitutionalist and conservative voice? And who are some of the other, you know, bright members, let's say in your class that have come along? Because one of the things that my generation has to do, we've got to pass that torch of liberty and freedom to you all to continue this fight. We got to set the conditions for your success. So who do you see those bright shining stars out there? Well, you know, there's any number of organizations, any number of individuals that that I look to and, and consider kind of close allies in this fight. So, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I could rattle off some names, I suppose. I mean, you know, in my bio that you graciously read, I mean, I'm, I'm the co-host of the NatCon Squad podcast, the Edmund Burke Foundation. My three co-hosts there, Ben Weingard and Rachel Bovard, Emily Jashinsky are all absolutely fantastic. Um, Sorab Amari, the former uh, op-ed editor of the New York Post, currently a co-founder of a new publication called Compact is a good friend and I think kind of a ideological ally of mine in many ways here. Um, uh, Yoram Hazoni, who's the, you know, the, the, the chairman of the Emin Burke Foundation. Um, he, he's, he, he's very influential, I think, on, on the way that I approach the world and have more generally how I approach kind of the future of the, of the American right and the right of center, globally speaking in general here. Um, you know, the blaze based right there in Texas, mm-hmm. I think has a number of excellent young talents. Ali Beth Stuck, he's a host there. Yes. Who's, a, you know, who's a friend of mine, Steve Dace up in Iowa, I think, I think is fantastic. So, you know, there are, there are a number of us out there. Um, uh, Michael Knowles, my former colleague at the oh, Daily yeah. Wire, uh, he's fantastic. Matt Walsh. So, you know, look, there, 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 there are a bunch of us, I think, who kind of form kind of, um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, not everyone, obviously, who's young is is on the same page as me as far as as far as everything that I'm saying or doing. But if there's one way that I can kind of subscribe kind of the brand and approach to conservatism that I'm trying to do. I am basically just trying to tell my fellow conservatives that the culture has been arrayed against us for 50 to 60 years. For 50 to 60 years, we've just been pleading live and let live neutrality. Just mm-hmm. give us our give us our space. Let us kind of you know go to church, synagogue, let us do our thing in private. And the more that we just plead for tolerance, the more that they just take over all of the institutions, the universities, the media. So we we have to go on offense. And in, in red states like Texas, Florida, Tennessee, we need strong-willed governorship, like I have here in in, in Florida, thank God, to Governor DeSantis. We need people to like to go, actually go on offense and actually kind of reward our political friends and punish our political enemies, similar to the way that Governor DeSantis did to the Walt Disney Company, actually in April. That's a that's a good example of the kind of strong-willed conservatism. So you know whether it's 
folks like me, Chris Rufo would be another excellent example of a young, enterprising conservative who I think very much is on the offense as far as the culture war. But younger conservatives in particular, Colonel, I think we understand that at this point in the year 2022, with the Republic increasingly hanging on, it sometimes it seems by, you know, very much on the brink, mm-hmm. every issue is a culturally and civilizationally salient issue. The time for kind of Wall Street Journal editorial board tax cuts you know, look, I don't like taxes, obviously, but like the idea that tax cuts are going to solve our problems right now, total nonsense. Every issue right now is about fighting to preserve our culture and our civilization and our sense of the American way of life. Now, you are absolutely spot on. And one of the things I, I always say is that you don't win on defense. You've got to go on offense. And yeah. even if you have a successful defense, you got to counterattack. And Andrew Breitbart once said that politics flows downstream of the culture. And I think that's where we have to get engaged. But the problem that I have seen is that Republicans, conservatives, however you want to say it, we don't have the same type of killer instinct that the other side has. Right. And I'm not talking about going out and shooting and killing him. I'm talking about defeating and destroying your opposition. Um, we don't see that. And my prayer is that if the Republicans win the House and the Senate, we will see that type of fighter and that type of killer instinct that they can do through policy and legislation and hearings and what have you. Uh, not that, you know, we got to go and shackle people like they just did Peter Navarro in the airport, but we got to make them believe that we will. Uh, because right now they don't have that. They don't have a fear of us. I don't think close your no, thoughts. No, no, not at all. And look, I, I, I would only echo that sentiment and, and, and go further, I guess. I mean, like, so Abigail Schreier, you know, who's done amazing work on the transgender issue. She had a recent Substack post. I don't, I don't remember the title of the post, but the, but, but the subtitle was In Defense of Political Escalation. And, you know, I, Abigail is a friend of mine. She's very, she's, she's brilliant. I, I think that she is kind of an ex kind of live and let live style classical liberal who's been mugged mm-hmm. by reality a little bit. Because even if kind of live and let live style classical liberalism is the end goal, you know, the pendulum has been so warped. It has been so distorted. It is now swinging so far to the left that some sort of prudential escalation of our tactics is called for simply to right the ship. And again, that does not mean, obviously, God forbid, uh, anyone actually physically getting violent, obviously. But it does mean at a bare minimum that when Republicans are actually in power in elected office or when conservatives are in power Mm -hmm. in the private sector, whether it's the media, the university or whatever, to actually use that power to put forward a vision of the good. And, you know, again, I think Governor Sanders' leadership here in Florida is just a very good example of that in general. Um, But, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I obviously agree with you. I mean, even if the goal is some sort of kind of live and let live liberalism. We have to fight back harder simply to get that pendulum back toward the center at a bare minimum. You're right. You know, I, when tolerance becomes a one-way street, it leads to cultural suicide. So, Josh, where can people follow you, uh, your primary websites, uh, the NatCon podcast? Uh, let, us, let us know. Sure. Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. So my podcast, The Josh Hammer Show, is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, ditto for NatCon Squad. You can find that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And then, and then go ahead and check out Newsweek.com slash opinion. That's the opinion section that I run every day, which we were talking about earlier. And, you know, you'll find my weekly syndicated columns that appear there. But we're publishing any number of very interesting writers on a daily basis there as well. Well, I appreciate you coming on the Steadfast and Loyal podcast, and you and your cohorts do represent the future for conservatism in the media outlet. So God bless you, and thanks so much. God bless you, Colonel. Thank you. Take care, Josh. All right, we're clear.
That was great. Thank you so much. I really, I really oh, enjoyed no, that. Oh, this is awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah. Have a great night. Right. You too. Take care. Uh-huh. Want to thank Josh Hammer, the opinion editor there at Newsweek. You want to talk about being behind lies? Be a conservative opinion editor at Newsweek. But yet he's standing strong. And I want you to take courage from what you saw him say and the, the courage that he showed. Because that's how we're going to win this culture war, this battle in which we find ourselves here in the United States of America. We can no longer see ground to the left because when tolerance becomes a one-way street, it leads to cultural suicide. Not saying you have to be a hater like them, but you have to say that there's a line in the sand and I'm not stepping back any further. So thank you so very much, Josh, and enjoy the weather down there in Miami, Florida. And if you like the podcast, please hit the like button and share it with others. God bless you and have a good evening. Before they burn it down.